If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The First World War unleashed a wave of carnage with hundreds of thousands of soldiers sustaining severe facial wounds. The British surgeon Harold Gillies rebuilt the faces of many of these wounded men, developing new techniques that shaped modern plastic surgery. Lindsay Fitzharris is the author of a new book on Gillies called The Facemaker. Rhiannon Davis spoke to her about his incredible career and the men whose lives he changed. So, Lindsay, why did you decide to write this book? I guess the short of it is I knew it was going to be a really good story. So I have a PhD in the history of science and medicine from Oxford University. But these days, I don't really call myself a historian as much as a storyteller. And my first book, The Butchering Art, which is about the Victorian surgeon Joseph Lister, who's known today as the father of antiseptic surgery, is really different from what the face maker is. And I think a lot of my existing readers will be surprised that I decided to write this war tale about military medicine during the First World War. And actually, I was quite surprised by that as well. I went into this book knowing virtually nothing about facial reconstruction, military medicine, which is probably why it took me five years to research and write in the end, because I was starting from zero. But I had come across Gillies and his patients and academic works, and I just knew that there was a good story there and that it was a story that should be told in a much bigger way. Because a lot of these disfigured soldiers during the First World War were hidden from the public. Uh, I talk about 
about in the face maker that they were forced to sit on brightly painted blue benches, for instance, so that the public knew not to look at them. So I really want their stories to be told. And I hope in the end, if you pick up the face maker and you read it, you feel that I've done their stories justice. Certainly. And you mentioned that these soldiers were hidden from the public. Historically, how far back can we trace that, this idea of hiding away people who had facial disfigurements? Plastic surgery as such predates World War I, so I don't want anyone to think that Harold Gillies, the pioneering surgeon whom the book is focused on, is the father of plastic surgery. I don't really like the titles, you know, the father of such and such, even though I just described Joseph Lister as the father of antiseptic surgery, but they're not really that helpful. And in this case, it would be wrong to call him that because plastic surgery does predate World War I. In fact, the term was coined in 1798. At that time, plastic meant something that you could mold or you could shape. So in this instance, skin or soft tissue of a patient. And attempts at early reconstruction of the face or to alter the appearance tended to focus on really small areas of the face. So we're looking at rhinoplasty being one of the oldest surgical procedures on record. So there weren't huge attempts at reconstructing the entire face, not really until the American Civil War. And even at that, it was quite limited. It seems like shame is really tied into facial disfigurements and particularly in connection to syphilis. Could you talk a bit about that? A lot of the reason why disfigurement um, is associated with shame is because of its association with disease. So syphilis, the emergence of syphilis in earlier periods um, led to disfigurement of the face. The nose uh, would cave in. It was something called saddle nose. And so people associated syphilis with a moral failing. The other thing was that uh, sometimes uh, someone would be purposely disfigured as a form of punishment. And this all got ingrained in our culture. And so that stigma really continues even to today. If you look at Hollywood movies, a lot of villains are disfigured. And that's a really lazy trope, you know, to say that the person is evil or has some kind of moral failing. I could rattle off so many, you know, the Joker, the Phantom of the Opera, Bane, even in Batman. There's just there's so many and you can go on and on. And I think that's a real problem in Hollywood. So that idea is still well and alive today in 2022, unfortunately. So let's go back then to the First World War. What was it about this conflict that made facial injuries so prevalent? Well, the nature of trench warfare led to high rates of facial injuries, as you said. Men were maimed, they were gassed, um, they were kicked in the face by horses in some cases. In fact, before the war was over, I think it was something like 280,000 men from France, Britain, and Germany alone would suffer some form of facial trauma. And the medical challenges were immense at this time. This is before antibiotics. And this was a time when losing a limb made you a hero, but losing a face made you a monster to a society that was largely intolerant to facial differences. Whereas a prosthetic limb doesn't necessarily need to look like the arm or leg it's replacing, a face is an entirely different matter. Uh, Any surgeon willing to undertake the monumental task of reconstructing a soldier's face this time not only had to consider the loss of function, such as the inability to eat or to swallow, but they also had to consider the aesthetic so that the face was deemed socially acceptable at the time. So there were so many challenges that came with this, but the sheer scale of the event, uh, as I said before, you know, there, you see some facial reconstruction going on during the American Civil War, but it was the sheer scale of the event. It was the weaponry. And really, medicine just didn't have time to catch up. And so when World War I 
occurs, there's this huge need for facial reconstruction. And as a result, you really see plastic surgery being ushered into that modern era. And you mentioned Harold Gillies earlier, but can you tell us a bit more about him? So Harold Gillies, who whom I call the face maker, and actually, you know, the title of this book really eluded me for so long. And it wasn't really until I was writing the epilogue and one of Harold Gillies' friends had written him a letter to congratulate him on his knighthood after the war was over. And he addressed it to the face maker. And I thought, this is perfect. That's exactly who he is. Gillies was an ENT surgeon. He volunteered to go over with the British Red Cross when the war broke out. And he was introduced to the idea of facial reconstruction and the need for it on the Western Front by a really amazing character called Charles Vladier. He's this French-American dentist. He retrofits his Rolls-Royce with a dental chair and he drives it to the front under a hail of bullets. I mean, this guy is an absolute legend. He's just a bigger-than-life character during the war. And he works for free and he's just an amazing person. And he's the one who really shows Gillies this incredible need for facial reconstruction at the time. And Gillies ends up going back to Britain and he petitions to open his own specialty unit at the Cambridge Military Hospital in Aldershot. And so that's how it all begins. Eventually, he would be so overwhelmed by the number of men needing his help that he opened an entire hospital dedicated to facial reconstruction. And that was the Queen's Hospital in Sidcup. But it's just an incredible story. Definitely. And something that really struck me is it's not just Gillies on his own. You mentioned Vladier with his pretty incredible Rolls Royce. But this theme of collaboration runs throughout the book and Gillies is really determined to build this team, isn't he? Can you tell us who he brings on board? Yeah, so one of the things about Gillies is that he wasn't the only surgeon operating on faces in this period. There were other surgeons in other countries that were doing this, but they tend to work alone. Uh, And they didn't bring on, for instance, dental technicians. This ended up being really important to facial reconstruction, having a dental surgeon there to illustrate and work on the hard uh, surfaces. He also brought in artists, photographers, radiographers, mask makers, wonderful, creative team that all worked towards rebuilding a soldier's face. One of the artists was Henry Tonks, who's quite famous in his own right. And he spent a lot of time at the Queen's Hospital in Sidcup drawing these men in, you know, all these wonderful colors of the war, you know, these lurid greens and these crimson reds. And so whereas a photograph certainly captures the extent of the injury, Tonks really captured the person who was injured. Mm. And I was really struck by the fact he did include artists, but I suppose it would have been so important, wouldn't it, to document the processes because plastic surgery, even though it existed in some form, they really are bringing a new era of it into being, aren't they? Making all of these new procedures. Yeah, and I think Gillies realized that, you know, partway through as he began his work, he he recognized the need to document all this amazing work. They would be in the operating room, these artists would be in the operating room, they'd be drawing what was going on. This is just so hugely important to what plastic surgery ultimately becomes. So their inclusion is really important. And the accomplishment, Gilly's accomplishment, although the book is called The Facemaker, it's really a team effort, as you say. And all of these people are part of that amazing uh, effort to rebuild these soldiers' faces at this time. 
Definitely. And I wanted to ask you next about the mask makers. Can you talk through the process of creating a mask? Yeah, the masks are really have become quite famous on the internet because a lot of these photos have taken off. They've become very viral. There was a character in Boardwalk Empire who wore one of these masks. And so they live now in the imagination of people. And and so I get questions about the masks all the time. The masks were non-surgical solutions that were presented by artists like the sculptor Anna Coleman lad. And they're beautiful. They're exquisite. And the photos rightly have taken off in a viral way because when you look at them, it looks almost like a human face. But you have to remember that these are still photographs. If you were sitting in front of someone wearing one of these masks, it could be a bit unsettling because the masks were expressionless. They couldn't operate like a face. They were also very uncomfortable to wear. They were fragile. They didn't age with the patient. So long-term, they weren't really a solution. But Gillies himself would employ masks, although he hated them, because really the masks reminded him of the limitations of what he was doing surgically. But sometimes when a patient was recovering, so if you imagine rebuilding a soldier's face, and again, in the face maker, you'll see the photos of their injuries. These are extensive injuries. It takes years, sometimes even beyond a decade, to rebuild a soldier's face. At various points, perhaps the soldier, for his own comfort, he doesn't want to be stared at as he goes out, might wear one of these masks so that he can go out into society and not be stared at. But one of the things you have to remember with the masks is that they're worn for the comfort of the viewer. The person who's disfigured is wearing it for the, for everybody else's comfort. But for themselves, they are very uncomfortable and awkward to wear. And as a result, they weren't really a long-term solution. But they are brilliant. And the artists who spent so much time lovingly creating these very highly individualized masks really deserve a lot of credit. And in a way, they're doing artistically what Gillies is doing in the operating room, a highly individualized procedure uh, to, to make someone you know, to make someone's face function and look like a face again. Really incredible. And you mentioned that some of these operations could take decades, but in your book, you say mirrors are banned on the wards, so soldiers can't see what they look like as they're recovering. Would they never see what they looked like through that whole process? Well, the mirrors, you know, this is a really interesting question, too. Gillies had banned mirrors. As you say, it was done under the guise that it was to protect these men. When you're going through facial reconstruction, your face can sometimes look worse before it looks better. It's a process, and he didn't want the soldiers to get frustrated with that process. And we can understand this on a certain level, but... I had a wonderful sensitivity reader who was a disability activist read the manuscript and give me feedback. And her name's Ariel Henley. She's an author of a book called A Face for Picasso, which actually just won an incredible award. And Ariel said to me, I want you to think about how Although it was done under the guise that it was to protect these men from getting frustrated, it also instilled in them a belief that they had faces that weren't worth looking at. And it could be really lonely and isolating. And remember, as I said earlier at the top of the interview, a lot of these men were forced to sit on brightly painted blue benches when they left the the hospital grounds so that the public knew not to look at them. So they were constantly getting feedback that they had fa- that there was something wrong with their faces. And to some extent, even what Gillies was doing was a product of facial bias, right? Because if you have to restore function, that's one thing. You have to restore someone's ability to swallow or to speak or to breathe. But he was obviously going far beyond this. And these soldiers were submitting to lengthy, long, painful recoveries so that their faces were deemed socially acceptable. So it's all part of a, a bigger conversation about 
societal biases at this time towards disfigured soldiers or disfigured faces. But yes, the, the mirrors were banned. Sometimes the men still saw their, their images. There's a story of a Corporal X. We don't know his name. Uh, one of the nurses working at the hospital tells this story about how when he was brought there, he was fully bandaged. And he kept joking about how he wanted these bandages to be taken off because his fiance Molly, want, you know, would want to come visit. He didn't want to scare her. And eventually the bandages are taken off and he gets a glimpse of his face in a shaving mirror that had been smuggled into the hospital. And he becomes really despondent after seeing his wounds. And the nurse says to him, well, you should have Molly come and visit. And eventually he says he'll never see Molly again because he wrote her a letter and he told her that he had met another woman in France and he broke off the engagement because he didn't want to be a burden on her. That's how he felt. Um, And it was said that he went and lived a life of self-imposed isolation. So some of these stories are really tragic. Not all of the stories of the soldiers end uh, tragically, but but certainly there are some of those mixed into the face maker. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So they had to come up with solutions to anesthetize these men where, you know, for instance, I, I tell the story in The Facemaker where the patient is literally breathing out ether into Gilly's face and he's getting sleepy. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. So next I want to talk about the photographs that you included in your book. And you mentioned sensitivity What was your journey to deciding to include them and why did you pick those specific ones? 
Yeah, the photographs were a really difficult decision. I did not want to put these men on the metaphorical blue bench in 2022. I think that it's important that we reckon with the human cost of war, especially at this time when we're seeing what's going on in the world. We need to understand that. And these men shouldn't be hidden, but also I didn't want to objectify them. So I did consult with Ariel Henley, my disability and sensitivity reader, and we talked about it at length. And I came to the decision that I would include photos of the main patients that I had discussed in the book. There's a, there's a lot of patients, and there's certainly a lot of patients who don't even make it into the face maker, but sort of the main ones that if you read the book from cover to cover, you would remember those men's names. So I think there's about eight or nine of them that I include. But I drew a line at not including photos or injured fo- injury photos of men who died in Gilly's care. So there was a pilot named Lumley who crashed his plane on graduation day. He didn't even make it into battle. And he was severely burned as a result. And it took, I think, some something like a year to get into Gilly's care. Now, if you can imagine a burned face and burned neck and chest, and you're waiting a year, there's a lot of scarring. It's just a terrible situation. By the time he had reached Gillies, he was addicted to morphine. He was really in a bad shape. And Gillies came up with an operative plan, but he wanted to wait. He thought that uh, Lumley wasn't in great condition, but Lumley begged him uh, to do the operation sooner rather than later. And so Gillies did do it. And as a result, Lumley ended up dying. Now, his inclusion in the book is important because he teaches Gillies a crucial lesson, which is that you can't always do the operation in one big move. Sometimes you have to build the face in piecemeal. And what works for one patient doesn't necessarily work for another patient. So this is really crucial uh, to Gillies forming his own principles of plastic surgery. But it was a horrible story. And I remember reading the case book and Gillies said something like, one could have only hoped for a happier ending for such a warrior. And I didn't want to include his photos of his injuries or anything having to do with his reconstructive work because he did die. So what I did was I included a pre-injury photo of him in his uniform, and then I included a surgical diagram that Gillies had drawn of what he was, what he ultimately did in the operating theater. But yeah, it was, it's, it's a fine line and I will hold my hands up and say that maybe I didn't always get it right, but I wanted to make sure that I was having those important conversations with people who you know, are part of the disability community and and feel these stories in a way that I can't because I'm not part of that community. And you mentioned that one particular operation. Um, I was wondering, this is probably a difficult question to answer as you've just said they're also individual, but what would a standard reconstruction procedure look like? What were the stages in coming in as an injured soldier and leaving completely free of Gilly's care? There was no standard. Um, as, as you say, everybody's injuries were different. So there was one man who was brought in. Um, he was a sailor. He was terribly burned during the Battle of Jutland. And as a result, his eyelids had flipped inside out. So he couldn't even close his eyes, which was terrible. His name was Abel Seaman William Vicarage. Um, and he was brought into Gilly's care in 1917. And he was terribly burned as well. So the first step of that process was to raise flaps. So a flap of skin is something that a a pedicle stays attached on one end. So it stays attached at its origin so that the blood supply continues to pump through it. And then you reattach the other side to the area that you want to reconstruct. And once that flap 
creates its own blood vessels on the area you want to reconstruct, then you can sever it at its origin, if that kind of makes sense. That's, that still sounds very confusing. But what happened with Vicarage was when you would raise a flap, the underside of the, of the flap would be exposed. So all the blood vessels, and of course, this is very dangerous. This is before antibiotics, rates of infection could rise. So what happened was when Gillies was operating, he started to make a cylinder. So he wrapped it into a cylinder and he stitched it. So it was like a tube and he called it a tube or a tubed pedicle. And this was really innovative because it meant that it wasn't exposed to the air. It was less likely to get infected. And so if you can imagine like a tube of of flesh uh, being like they would call them waltzing pedicles. So you could take the tube and you can attach it to one area of the body. Then you could sever it at its origin. You could take that side and waltz to a different area. So you could literally move pieces of tissue from very low on the body all the way up to the face. And so this is ultimately what he's known for, one of the things he's known for. So you you would have flaps or skin grafts. You might have cartilage taken from your ribs to rebuild your nose. There's all kinds of things that he could do and that he was learning to do and teaching himself to do in the process of reconstructing the face. So that's a really long-winded answer. It was never easy. And when it came to Vicarage and his eyelids, he actually ended up adapting a procedure from a Dutch surgeon named Johan Esser. Um, and it was called an epithelial inlay. And you don't really need to know that, but all you need to know is that he adapted this and he was able to reconstruct something as delicate and as technical as eyelids so that Vicarage could finally close his eyes and sleep at night. So it's wonderful what he was able to accomplish for some of these men. Mm, That must have been such a relief to not have to wear a mask anymore and be able to close your eyes. Yeah. What role does dentistry play in reconstruction? A huge role. (laughs) So, you know, going back to Vladier with his his dental chair and his Rolls Royce, dentistry, first of all, dentistry was was somewhat rudimentary going into World War One. A lot of these soldiers didn't even own a toothbrush. So they were already having a lot of problems with their teeth. There was a lot of bacteria. Now you imagine bullets or uh, shrapnel going through the, the face. And so the incidences of infection were rising rapidly because of this. The other thing was that a lot of times uh, a surgeon at the front, a well-meaning surgeon, might suture the face very quickly to stop the hemorrhaging. Anybody who's had any kind of head wound, minor head wound, will know that it bleeds a lot. The face is very vascular. So to stop the hemorrhaging, they're going to suture up the face very quickly. And as a result, they would literally seal up a sailor or a soldier's fate because they would seal in that bacteria. So dentistry became very important important in facial reconstruction. And Gillies recognized that from the start, probably because of the relationship he built with Vladier, who was a dentist and dental surgeon. And so he brought dental surgeons into the Queen's Hospital at Sidcup. He worked with a man named Kelsey Fry, uh, who was really crucial to what Gillies was able to ultimately achieve. And Gillies would say that he worked on the soft tissues and the and Kelsey Fry would work on the hard tissues. So while they were reconstructing the jaw and Kelsey Fry would be working on various aspects of aligning the teeth and the jaw and getting all the, the prosthetics in place, then Gillies was working on, you know, the, the missing chunks from the face, the soft tissues that were damaged. And if you have a dentist and a surgeon working on someone's face, how does the anesthetist play into that? Yeah. <laughs> 
this is this is the sort of the B story to Gilly's A story is is anesthesia. Um, and again, if you pick up the face maker and you see the photos of these men, it's going to become very clear very quickly why this was a problem. So anesthesia hadn't developed much since the 19th century. It begins with the first ever ether operation in London in 1846. That's pretty much what they're doing in World War One. They're taking a rag or they're taking a mask and they're placing it over the face. And and there wasn't even sort of specialty training in anesthesia. So anybody was doing it, essentially. And as a result, this was a real problem when it came to facial reconstruction, because, of course, putting a rag or a mask over a face that's very damaged number one, would be very painful. So if you're looking at someone um, who's lost part of their jaw, this is extremely painful. But the other problem was that it literally was covering the surgical area that required attention. So they had to come up with solutions to anesthetize these men where, you know, for instance, I, I tell the story in The Face Maker where the patient is literally breathing out ether into Gilly's face and he's getting sleepy. These were the, ch- I mean, can you imagine you're trying to rebuild the soldier's face and he's literally exhaling ether into your face? So they the, eventually, an uh, anesthetist over here who he worked with named McGill ended up developing intratracheal anesthesia. So like I said, that's sort of the B story to Gilly's A story. And these are happening in parallel. And we shouldn't really be surprised because the challenges of anesthetizing someone with a facial injury was huge. The other thing was that these guys smoked a lot. And I didn't realize this either, but if you're a heavy smoker, it can um, interfere with how the drugs interact in your body. So it was hard to actually anesthetize them for other reasons besides their facial injury. So there was just all kinds of issues going on in in the operating theater at this time. What's Gilly's bedside manner like? So I love Gilly's because he's such a character. And Ariel Henley, my sensitivity reader who's undergone reconstructive surgery herself, said that one of the parts of the face maker that she enjoyed was seeing that relationship that develops between patient and surgeon when you're under that person's care for an extensive amount of time. Gillies was a prankster. Um, he was a jokester. He was good at everything he did. He was an amateur golfer. Uh, he was he had won many championships. But I think it was his sense of humor that really served him and his patients well in the midst of all this horror during World War I. And so I'll give you an example. At the Queen's Hospital in Sidcup, there were all kinds of rules about what the soldiers could and couldn't do. So they couldn't drink, they couldn't gamble. But Gillies occasionally would dress up in this alternative persona, which he called Dr. Scroggy. And he would go on to the wards and he'd bring champagne and oysters and he would gamble with the guys and he would joke with them. And they all loved this about Gillies. So he really kept their spirits up. I think the other aspect of keeping their spirits up was just the nature of the hospital itself. Because everybody had a facial injury, nobody necessarily had to feel self-conscious. So there were workshops and classes, and there was ways to participate in social activities. Whereas if you had a facial injury and you were at a hospital that didn't specialize in facial injuries, you might feel self-conscious participating in anything because maybe you know, the, the the other men aren't disfigured and you and you feel a little bit self-conscious about that. But at the Queen's Hospital, everybody was facing the same challenges and that really served all of them very well in the end. And how did the soldiers remember Gillies in their time at the Queen's Hospital? It's, you know, writing the epilogue of this book was really a tearjerker for me because reading all of their letters, when he eventually received a knighthood for his work, a lot of them wrote these wonderful letters. And one of them said something to the effect of, 
you won't remember us, but we remember you, Um, meaning that there were so many of them and it would be difficult for him to remember each and every one. Although I would argue that he probably did a good job at remembering a lot of these men. There's a man named Private Walter Ashworth who is injured on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. And when he's injured, he falls forward and he lays in the battlefield for three days. I mean, there's nothing more harrowing than losing your jaw, being unable to scream and having to lay on a battlefield for three days. Eventually, he finds his way to Gillies. And um, as with Corporal X, he learned that broken faces often led to broken hearts at this time, and his fiance ends their engagement. But his story has a bit of a happier ending because his fiance's friend got wind of this, and she ended up writing letters to him. And eventually, she visited him at the hospital, they fell in love, and they ended up getting married. But later when he was discharged, although Gillies was able to create a tremendous effect with the face, he was able to reconstruct, not everybody was able to accept his new appearance. And he went back to work as a tailor's assistant. And his boss said that he had to perform menial tasks at the back of the shop because he didn't want Ashworth to frighten the customers. And this was terrible. You know, I I said something in the book to the effect that not all wounds were inflicted on the battlefield at this time. And he felt really disheartened and discouraged by by this reception after his surgery. And so he ended up quitting the job. He and his wife relocated to Australia. And many, many years later, Gillies bumps into him on that side of the world. And Gillies, at this point, had grown as a reconstructive surgeon. And he offered to have another go at Ashworth's face. He said that he felt that he could improve his appearance even further. And for whatever reason, Ashworth actually declined the offer. And I said that perhaps it was that he had made peace with a face that had been given to him when he thought all hope had been lost. So Ashworth's story really gives us that lovely sort of happy ending. Um, I think Gillies probably remembered most of those patients um, although there were so many of them, and they certainly loved and admired him. But as much as, you know, Gillies changed their lives, they changed his life in return, and it was it was a two-way street. So bearing in mind the attitudes of society, how did the press react to Gillies and his surgery? When the Queen's Hospital was first opened, the press presented it as miracle workers. In fact, there's a scene in The Facemaker where a journalist visits Gillies in the uh, operating theater. And it's an incredible scene because this uh, Gillies is about to raise this huge flap from the chest and reconstruct the soldier's face. And the journalist actually gets a bit queasy and has to leave the room and he has to smoke a cigarette and get some air. But the work was incredible and miraculous and the newspapers were reporting it as such. But the newspapers also, remember, were were presenting this as like the worst thing that could happen to someone. And again, you see that facial bias come into play in the language. This was the worst thing that could happen. And in fact, it was one of few injuries during World War I that warranted a full pension as well. Now, if you're disfigured, it doesn't stop you from working necessarily, but that's how badly society believes being disfigured was. Um, So the language around disfigurement was harsh in these newspapers. And again, Gillies is being presented entirely in a positive light that he's rebuilding and restructuring, and it's a miracle what he's able to achieve. But I always want to impress on people who are listening or reading the book that remember that Gillies is very much a product of the facial bias around him as well, and that he's going above and beyond what maybe is surgically necessary so that he is he is able to rebuild a face by the standards of what people are deeming acceptable of its day. 
I chose the word disfigured as well uh, in consultation with Ariel Henley because the feeling was that although today we might use the term facial difference, back in 1917, these men were disfigured to the people that were looking at them. And I think to call them anything but that would be to lessen their actual experience against this kind of prejudice. And we've talked a lot so far about Gilly's successes, but what about his failures? Yes, and that's a really good point. Of course, anything, especially medically or scientifically, is built on failure as much as it is built on success. And there were, of course, things that didn't work. Um, There was a man named Private Young who had received the Victoria Cross, and he ends up dying in Gilly's care. And that was related to anesthesia. His heart gave out. Um, So there were all kinds of challenges. Also remember, one of the biggest challenges was that a lot of times these men would be laid on their back by well-meaning medics, and as a result, they drowned in their own blood or they choked on their tongues because if you're missing certain facial anatomy, your tongue is going to slide back into your throat. So there were so many challenges, and there was a really steep learning curve. And so Gillies, of course, was failing as much as he was succeeding, especially in those early days. And I think that's important to acknowledge, and I include those men's stories again in the book. We've already discussed Lumley, the pilot who was severely burned. These teach Gillies a lot, teaches medicine a lot, but of course there was a real human cost to it, and it's it's very tragic and very sad. And so far we've just looked at the Allies, but what about on the other side? What about the Germans? What progress did they make in plastic surgery? Yeah, so of course um, there was facial reconstruction going on in Germany. Uh, There is a surgeon that I discuss named Jacques Joseph, and he actually had more experience in cosmetic surgery than Harold Gillies did going into the war. Um, He would often uh, alter the appearance of his Jewish clients in order that they survive and that they blend into society. So we have to remember that cosmetic surgery or this kind of elective cosmetic surgery going on in these earlier periods wasn't a vanity project. It was a survival project for a lot of these patients undergoing the knife. Jacques Joseph himself was a Jewish German surgeon, and he was doing amazing work uh, during World War I. One of his patients, if you could see a picture, I didn't actually include his picture in it, um, but it, it was the kind of wound that even when you're looking at his picture, you think it has to be faked because it it, lo- it was so extreme. The man had lost a huge portion of his face. And uh, Joseph was able to reconstruct that part of his face, and the man was able to function and to live out his life. So he was also doing incredible work. Again, I would say that Gillies was slightly different or offset from some of these other surgeons, Morriston in France, Joseph in Germany, because he was working in a very collaborative way. So he had a team of people around him, the dental surgeons, the artists, the, you know, all kinds of people that were working on reconstructing the face, where a lot of times these other surgeons working on facial reconstruction, even though their work was amazing, they weren't necessarily working in that kind of collaborative way that Gillies was. But Joseph is a really interesting uh, person and, and certainly deserves a lot bigger attention as well. And maybe somebody else with with German (laughs) skills will be able to take on those sources at some point and write a book about him. And so thinking now about after the war, what happened to the soldiers who were being treated at the Queen's Hospital? Well, the war is only over 
for the dead, really. You know, a lot of these men continue their reconstructive surgery and the, and the process went on for many years after the war and Gillies continued to operate on them. Of course, after the war, Gillies wanted to pursue plastic surgery. He wanted to develop plastic surgery into a legitimate discipline in its own right, which it hadn't existed until that point. So he starts to branch out into cosmetic surgery. He starts to do elective surgery on people who want to perhaps just alter their appearance for whatever reason, as we discussed, some of them survival reasons. Reasons, but also some of them, um, you know, having more to do with vanity. And he loved that aspect of plastic surgery as well. So if you can think of plastic surgery as one heading, and then underneath you have cosmetic surgery and reconstructive surgery, and they both continue to be a really important part of plastic surgery today. There's a lot of reconstructive surgeons who are working and doing important work, and there's a lot of great cosmetic surgeons who focus on on more elective procedures. Gilly said that reconstructive surgery was returning something back to, quote, normal, and I'm going to use his word there, Um, but whereas cosmetic surgery was sort of surpassing the normal and going beyond that. And so he does start to do cosmetic surgery as well after the war. During World War II, he continues to do reconstructive work. He introduces his cousin, Archibald McIndoe, who a lot of people know through the guinea pig club, um, to the strange art of plastic surgery. A lot of people say, oh, is this book about the guinea pig club? And I say, well, it's kind of the prequel to the guinea pig club. And actually, Gillies was the one who introduced his cousin to it. And his cousin's work sort of surpassed or eclipsed his on some level, because I think the romance of the pilots during World War II and the Guinea Pig Club um, really caught fire in the imagination of the public. But he, Gillies himself, continued to operate during World War II. And in 1945, he performs the first ever phalloplasty on a trans man named Michael Dillon. Uh, Michael Dillon comes to him Um, and explains what he wants done. This is a pioneering surgeon. Gillies, always up for a challenge, decides to take it on. Now, Dylan is outed by the British tabloids several years later, and I said in the book that Gillies stood by him and that there were a lot of people in 1945 who might might not have seen Michael Dillon as a man, but Gillies was not one of them. So he really continued to change people's lives in unexpected and fascinating and interesting ways through his surgical talent. And for my final question, how did these innovators in the First World War and the men they treated shape the future of plastic surgery? Well, they were absolutely crucial in ushering plastic surgery into the modern era. As I said, plastic surgery had predated Gillies in World War I, but it wasn't until the scale of World War I that they were able to try and test these new methods and to develop new methods. And so these men who were operated on are the pillars of what plastic surgery became today. And think about how many people's lives are transformed today through the reconstructive talents of surgeons the world over. That was Lindsay Fitzharris. Her new book, The Facemaker, is out now from Penguin. You can also read a version of this interview in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. (laughs) 